welcome to stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you for joining me today, wherever you are, whenever you're listening, I'm so glad to have you here with me. Today's episode is the next installment of the Harold Shipman case. Before we get started, I'd like to talk to you about Studio Sweden. Have you ever gotten a set of headphones or earbuds and you had to choose between design or function? Well, with Studio Sweden, you get both. The pair that I have is the newest model, Trey, which are the Bluetooth earbuds. I got them in this beautiful matte blue with nice, highly polished buttons for accents. They're just gorgeous to look at. And like I said, it's their newest model for active lifestyle. They have impeccable clarity and instrumental tones and a well-balanced sound. What's really cool is that there is nine plus hours of active battery life and 10 days of standby life. And they're great for home and on the go. Made of waterproof material, custom wingtips that comfortably stay in your ear. And you never get caught off guard because of the sound transparency. You get great quality sound, but you're still able to hear what's going on around you. So they're safe when you're out and about, jogging, walking, shopping, however you like to use them. My favorite thing to listen to on these headphones is podcasts and audiobooks, and they sound absolutely fabulous. However, I only have one complaint. My wife borrowed my headphones and I haven't seen them since, so it looks like I'm going to have to look into getting myself another pair. So why don't you head over to the website, www.studiosweden.com, and check out all their wonderful products. And if you buy, and you should, there's a discount code for 15% off. Just type in STAT, capital S-T-A-T, and you'll get your 15% off. Studio Sweden. What I'd like to talk about now is iTunes. I want to thank the following people for giving me such wonderful iTunes reviews. And for those that rated my podcast, if you don't feel like writing a review, a rating is just as good. A rating is just as good and every bit as important. It helps get the podcast out there, people to find it, see it, and all that good stuff. So thank you to Crazy Pug Lady. I have had a few pugs in my life, so you're not so crazy, crazy pug lady. Michelle Kaufman, and forgive me if I don't pronounce this right, Alpha Pet Nord. It's really cool because this person's review was amazing, and they are from Sweden. So thank you so much to all you guys. I want to thank everybody that is supporting me on Patreon. Like I've said so many times before, I really appreciate the support. And the help goes a long way. So thank you, everybody, for that. Okay, I think it's about time to get started 
and continue on with the Dr. Shipman case. So, Dr. Shipman, the monster who killed over 250 of his patients. 250 without getting caught. What I find ironic is that what got him busted was not getting caught red-handed with a murder, but from greed. And let me tell you how this all got started. Wednesday, June 24th, 1998 is a date that stands out in the minds of many people of Hyde, family and friends. Wenner's House is a place that pensioners of Hyde like to go to the supper club on the busiest day of the week for shopping. It's the market day. On this Wednesday, there was no lunch because the club's organizer, Kathleen Grundy, who shot for the food and helped prepare and serve it, hadn't shown up. Kathleen, Kathleen Grundy, who was 81, could run circles around people 20 years younger than her. John Shaw, the cop-turned-taxi driver who had been tracking deaths, described Kathleen as a 25-year-old in an 80-year-old's body. Kathleen was one of Shipman's patients. She was described as very elegant, vibrant, and enthusiastic. Her friend said she was very busy, always dashing everywhere. She couldn't sit still for even a moment. This woman was living life. So it seemed impossible that Kathleen could be sick because she was so well, so healthy. She had had a coffee at her friend's house the evening before and went home to watch the World Cup highlights. If she had been in well, she would have phoned them at the supper club. It was very unusual and concerning. Kathleen lived in a beautiful 17th century cottage that she had shared with her husband, a former mayor of Hyde, and he had died of a heart attack back in 1968. So Kathleen had lived alone and managed on her own for quite a long time. Two of Kathleen's friends were so concerned that they went to her house to check on her. They had prepared themselves for the worst. And everything about her situation at home was wrong. First of all, the front door of her house was open. Kathleen had it secured with two locks and almost never used it. She always used the side entrance. John Shaw always dropped her off and picked her up at the side door. And John always helped Catherine carry in her shopping, made sure the house was safe and secure, and that the door was locked behind him when he left. Not only was Kathleen's front door open, she was found fully clothed, lying on her settee. She was curled up as if she were asleep. The only real clue that she was dead was the color of her skin. Her complexion was gray and her lips were blue. They found her at 11.55 a.m. Kathleen had one daughter, Angela Woodruff, who is a successful lawyer. She lived 100 kilometers away, happily married to David Woodruff. The distance didn't reflect their relationship, though. They were very close and talked on the phone almost daily and visited each other many times in the year. Angela found out about her mother's death from the Hyde police. She then phoned Dr. Shipman's surgery. Here's a quote from Angela Woodruff. Quote, I phoned up Dr. Shipman's surgery because I knew that he'd been to see her after she died, and he told me that he had in fact seen her that morning. I got the impression that she called him out because she'd been ill. From the way he said it, he said that she hadn't been too well. Shipman explained that he had seen her mother the day before her death, just for a routine thing. He was vague and mentioned chest pains, possibly due to indigestion. 
He said he arranged to collect a blood sample the next day. End of quote. But he told a different story to police. Surprise, surprise. He told the police that Kathleen Grundy had been to see him the previous day because she'd gotten wax in her ears and needed some syringing. He said that he felt she looked in poor health. And he had decided to take a blood sample to check for diabetes and anemia. But that sample had to be taken first thing in the morning. And it's true, the samples had to be available for the lab for 11, so he'd want to be there for 8.30. And he said that when he called, quote, she was in her house coat and looked old and moved slowly, end of quote. All of this was a load of crap. His stories changed and everything he stated about Kathleen was completely against her character. She is not the type of lady to answer a door in a house coat. She would have called for help and let people know she was feeling unwell. Another interesting thing is that Kathleen had told her friend that not only was Shipman visiting to draw blood, but also to sign some papers. What papers? However, he didn't mention signing of any papers or blood work when he spoke to her friends that discovered her body. When in court, he said he drew blood and forgot to send it. When interviewed by the police, he told them that he sent it off, but the lab had lost it. And of course, none of this happened. No blood had been drawn. Miraculously enough, he knew what the cause of death was, like magic. Because only a doctor like Shipman could take a look at a person and know how they died without doing any further tests. He didn't examine her body. And he said that she had been dead for two hours before the police had gotten there. And the cause of death was old age. Yes, a very medical term. When he spoke to Angela, he was very arrogant and behaved superior to her. And all of this was discussed on the phone. When Angela arrived at Kathleen's home, things made even less sense to her. She expected to see some evidence of her mother feeling unwell, like some unclean dishes or Kleenex around, unmade bed, some basic untidiness, and maybe her mother in a dressing gown. The fact was that the house was perfectly clean and tidy and her garden had just been freshly tended. Her garden was her pride and joy and it was looking like it was just cared for. There was no sign that her mother had been unwell at all. It left Angela feeling very unsettled, but she chalked that up to feeling like she was in shock. So Angela busied herself organizing the funeral and sorting out her mother's estate. Kathleen Grundy was very well off and Angela, a solicitor, helped her to take care of her estate. Kathleen's home was a prime real estate, and she also owned a cottage in town and a flat in the lakes, as well as some good investments. Angela was well aware of her mother's will. She had written it years earlier, and she had left most of her estate to her close family. It seems like things had changed, though. Let's let Angela explain it in her words. Quote, About three weeks after she died, I had a phone call from a solicitor in Hyde saying that he had a will which had been sent to him on the day mom died. And it was apparently a will that she had made. He did not know my mom at all, and I did not know him. End of quote. The will appeared to be signed and dated June 9, 1998. It had arrived at the offices of the Hyde Solicitor's Hamilton Ward, along with a typed letter signed K. Grundy. The letter asked the solicitors to be executors of the will and said that she intended to make an appointment that, to discuss this in the near future. The staff filed it away and waited for further contact. Six days later, another letter arrived in the mail. It had no address, but it was dated June 28th and was also typed. 
And this is what the letter said. Quote, Mrs. Grundy of 79 Joel Lane, Hyde, died last week. I understand that she lodged a will with you as I, a friend, typed it out for her. Her daughter is at this address and you can contact her here. And it was signed S.F. Smith. S.F. Smith, who I suspect was Shipman, has never come forward, nor do any of Kathleen Grundy's family or friends recall her knowing anyone of that name. Finally, Brian Burgess, Hamilton Ward's probate manager, tracked down Angela Woodruff. She was very surprised because Angela had made her mother's will many, many years before, and she had it in her possession. Brian faxed over the other will to Angela, and she knew right away that her mother had not made it. First of all, it was typed very poorly, and her mother never typed anything. She was old school and had immaculate handwriting. Furthermore, the punctuation was bad, and it was typed in capital letters, which were sometimes hard to distinguish. The E, W, and A keys seemed not to have struck the ribbon, leaving gaps in the lettering on words like family and reward. Occasionally, lowercase letters were inappropriately used in the postal code. This information is all overkill, right? Well, no, because after all the horrible things he did, all the murders, lies, pain and suffering he caused, it was this poorly written will that got him busted. He made untold mistakes, errors, so bold that it seemed impossible that he never got caught. Well, not initially anyway. It's like the culmination of all his incompetence and arrogance and lack of intelligence, lack of insight, inability to judge right from wrong. In essence, his psychopathy caught up with him in the form of forging a will, not murder. The irony is too much to think of. The cruelty still remained even though it wasn't the murder that got him caught. The further kick in the teeth was that he put a shadow of doubt in her daughter's mind that her mother might have disinherited her and her grandchildren and left her entire state to this guy. And this is the letter that Shipman wrote disguising himself as Kathleen Grundy. He wrote this next to the section marked specific gifts and legacies and after the words I give. He typed this, quote, All my estate, money and house to my doctor. My family are not in need and I want to reward him for all the care he has given me and the people of Hyde. He is sensible enough to handle any problems this may give him, end of quote. He was giving himself a reference to the world, recognition of the great goodwill, the great work that he had did for the people of Hyde. The smarter he thought he was, the deeper he was digging his own grave. When he was asked by the two friends who had found Kathleen Grundy's body what they should do next, Dr. Shipman had suggested that they contact the lawyers, Hamilton Ward, as they would know how to handle everything. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> this arrogant ass had commented to another doctor in Hyde only days after Kathleen's death and before the will was discovered that he was about to come into an inheritance and was planning to move to France to retire very soon. Now it gets better. When the police visited him to question him about the will and its contents, Detective Superintendent Bernard Postles said that the man gave himself away right away. The smoking gun, the smoking typewriter. Here is a quote by Detective Postles. Quote, he was at the surgery locking up 
and when the officers arrived and showed him the warrant to search his premises, he immediately indicated a cupboard that held a typewriter. He also told us that on occasion, Kathleen Grundy had borrowed the typewriter, but he was unable to tell us when she returned it to him. End of quote. Like, it makes no sense that a lady like Kathleen Grundy would borrow a typewriter like she couldn't afford one herself, if she even wanted one. And a busted one to boot. Anyway. The defects on the typewriter matched the mistakes and inconsistencies on the documents he submitted to the lawyer. And there was not even a trace of Kathleen Grundy's prints on the typewriter, just Shipman's and his wife's. During this time, Angela Woodruff didn't know about this investigation, but she strongly suspected that Shipman had forged her will. They needed hard evidence to accuse a doctor of such high standing of fraud, forgery, and ultimately murder. They needed to verify the signatures on the will. Kathleen Grundy's signature looked like it had been traced. So what about the witnesses? They discovered that the witnesses were in fact real people, but who were they? The first was Claire Hutchison, who said that she had signed a will in shipment surgery. The next person was Paul Spencer, and he was asked if he had signed anything in shipment surgery, and he said that he did sign a document on June the 10th at shipment surgery. They both agreed that this is how it went down. Both had been in the waiting room, waiting to see Shipman. He stuck his head out around the corner of his consulting room and asked if they would mind witnessing a signature. They entered the room where Shipman and Kathleen Grundy were. He produced a document that had been folded in such a way that neither Paul Spencer or Claire Hutchison could see anything but the name Kathleen Grundy and a signature. The two were told to print their names and addresses and sign where indicated. Unwittingly, they had just signed Kathleen Grundy's death warrant. So why would Kathleen Grundy change her will for shipment and had two total strangers co-sign it? Well, she didn't know that's what she was doing. Two weeks before her death, Dr. Shipman had asked Kathleen Grundy to participate in a survey on aging. He had told her that one of his colleagues at Manchester University was involved in research. The bastard told her that, as she was an extremely healthy person, they wanted to know what her secret was. He tricked her into signing a document to leave all her possessions to him by flattering her about her health, so that he could kill her and get all her worldly possessions. Any one of these actions should have got him busted. He was reckless. And in essence, it did. Here is a quote from criminal psychologist Julie Boone. Quote, This all made perfect sense to Shipman. After all, he could not conceive of anyone suspecting him. A doctor, a forging a will. This absolutely forged will document is something that he would never dream could be questioned about. It is the perfect illustration of how he sees other people seeing him as the solid good doctor. Also the idea that if he presented this document, it would be taken as credible. It shows terrific delusions of grandeur and a complete sense of omnipotence over everybody else. No one would dare question me. The wording was extremely revealing. It gave a clear impression of how Shipman saw himself in a very elevated, egocentric sort of way. This explains something of the confidence with which he was able to commit his crimes. End of quote. Angela began to spend all of her available time investigating her mother's case. She was determined to crack it. She could, would, use her skills as a lawyer 
and the resources it afforded her to bus Shipman. She knew that it was going to be difficult and would have to be handled in a delicate and tricky way because he had sculpted himself the perfect doctor and thousands of people regarded him that way. Angela presented all of her findings to a criminal lawyer friend of hers. It took him just 30 minutes to read everything and tell Angela that she needed to report Shipman to the police straight away. This lawyer spoke to his contacts at Warwickshire Police and within hours they had referred it on to the Greater Manchester Police. They contacted Angela the very next day. Detective Inspector Stan Edgerton would become the lead detective on this case. Angela told him that she believed that Dr. Shipman had forged her mother's will and then killed her. This is a quote from Stan Edgerton. I was brought in, a senior officer, at an early stage because I realized that the potential of it and realized that there might be something more to this than a forgery. The most logical explanation was that Harold Shipman forged that will and murdered Kathleen Grundy. End of quote. Angela Woodruff gave them the smoking gun. They just needed the bullet. They needed to find out Kathleen Grundy's real cause of death. Based on what Shipman put as a cause of death, old age, which is not a medical cause of death, and Kathleen's robust health was very different. It just didn't fit. He felt that the only way that they were going to get the bottom of this was to exhume the body and have a post-mortem carried out. Shipman thought that he had covered his butt, though, because at the bottom of the will is a section called Marked Funeral Wishes. The box cremated had been ticked, and in case there was any doubt, the box marked buried was obscured with four X's. Kathleen Grundy had made it clear, though, that she wanted to be buried. As the new will didn't surface until after the funeral had taken place, it was her wishes, not those of the murderer, that had been carried out. Exhumation is in no way taken lightly. There are many procedures and strict rules that are designed to bring minimum distress to the family. Only a coroner can give permission for the exhumation, and they have to have a very good reason. John Pollard, the coroner for South Manchester, granted the permission after hearing the evidence. On August 1st, 1998, in the early hours, Kathleen Grundy's body was exhumed. Detective Stan Edgerton was joined by a detective, three scene of the crime officers, three specialist workers from the UK Exhumations, which is a company that is brought in to oversee the reopening of graves, and a police photographer. Exhumations are very difficult emotionally and mentally for all of those involved. The process is done in the most respectful way possible. Ironically, it's the very act of respect that makes the process very obvious to the public that it's being done, and here's why. For the process, the grave is covered with a white tent, which is supposed to ensure privacy, but good light is also vital, so arc lights are used to illuminate the work. Unfortunately, they also make the sides of the tent transparent. Add to this the humming of the generators that power the lights and the noise that the mini digger used to open the grave and the operation can hardly be described as discreet. It wasn't long before the local residents were woken by the strange goings-on in the small graveyard and by morning it seemed that the whole town had known Kathleen Grundy was being dug up because Shipman had eased her passing. End of quote. Shipman acted completely unfazed. He confided to his own personal physician that he was in trouble with the police over a forged will. No mention of murder, just a forged will. Did he just not get it or was he trying to deflect? 
Either way, his doctor, personal doctor, Wally Ashmore, felt that the police and Kathleen's family had gone mad. Shipman even held a little press conference at the back of his surgery. There was a reporter, a photographer from the local news agency that fed the national papers, as well as the local TV and radio. Unsurprisingly, Shipman was gruff, said a few words, posed for a picture, and went back into the clinic. Why bother? Well, because this was his way of controlling the situation. His short appearance gave clues to his personality. He held a defiant stance with his arms folded over his chest and an arrogant dismissal of the press. Back inside his surgery, he was greeted by a group of patients who had come down to offer their support. They were led by former detective and administrator of Shipman's patient fund, Len Fellows. He had a very short conversation with Shipman because Len did not think that he had done it. Also, Peter Wagstaff, a patient of Dr. Shipman's for over 20 years, also offered his support. And this is what Shipman oddly said to Peter. Quote, I just hope that after the exhumation that the postmortem didn't reveal more than an aspirin. End of quote. Why would he say that? At the end of the day, they found much more than aspirin. Julie Evan, the toxicologist from the Forensic Science Unit, found a large amount of morphine in Kathleen Grundy's tissues. The thing about morphine is that it is very stable, and it remains in the tissues of a body for a significant time after death. There are so many other ways that he could have used that either deteriorate rapidly or are naturally occurring in the body, like potassium and insulin. Dr. Shipman would have known that. He believed that there was no reason that he was ever going to get caught. It was the same logic he used when forging the will. So the police had their smoking gun, but they were not going to rush into anything. There were some very important things to consider before arresting Shipman. First of all, Shipman had a very good reputation in the area, and what the police didn't want to do was arrest him under some media spotlight, shining on them only to have him re-released again. They searched both his home and his office the same day, so he could not tamper with any of the evidence. The police arrived at Shipman's house unannounced on a Saturday. Shipman's family home was a semi a few miles outside of Hyde. The officers were shocked by what they found. The house was filthy, the kind of house where you have to wipe your feet off after you left so that you don't get the ground outside dirty. It was untidy and unclean, not what you'd expect a doctor's house to look like. The police found a large cardboard box in the house and a carrier bag in the garage. Between them, they contained the medical records of 150 of his former patients that were labeled dead in red pen. At the same time, Shipman was at his surgery. And when the policeman arrived there, he was described as being arrogant and acting as he was superior to the officers. And he almost seemed like he was prepared for them. When the police showed him their search warrant, he immediately took them to the brother typewriter. The warrant outlined the fact that they were looking for a typewriter, among other things. So how did he know? Why was he ready for that? I think we know the answer to that question. It was likely that he believed that he could bluff his way out of the situation, that he was above the people who had come along to search his surgery, and wouldn't be very difficult for him to give a clear explanation about why Kathleen Grundy had died the way she did. 
When Shipman was arrested two weeks later, he was shocked to find out that he was being interviewed by a lowly detective inspector. He expected to be interviewed by the chief constable himself and nothing less. The interview tapes reveal an arrogant manipulator. He clearly believed that he would not be kept behind bars for long. His word as a doctor would not be challenged. Bernard Postles, detective inspector, did not interview Shipman, but monitor his interviews from adjoining rooms. And this is how he described it. Quote, what Shipman seemed to be trying to do was to verbally fence. In that, he seemed to be thinking, what answers am I going to give here? You believe those answers, and I will walk out of here. I believe he came to the police station that morning, believing that by... Five o'clock in the afternoon, he would have explained things away and gone back to the surgery and home to have his evening meal. End of quote. He clearly thought, they can't touch me. They cannot connect this to me. I've been interviewed. I've been all over these different questions. The very worst they can do to me is catch me with some administrative issues. Shipman is a person who always felt the system owed him deference. He always felt he was much superior to everyone else. It had been ingrained in him since childhood. The fact that he couldn't control the situation came as a complete shock to him. He's always been able to deflect things. He had set up his perfect ruse. He'd been able to fool almost everyone for a long time, but that time was rapidly coming to an end and he didn't know how to handle it. This is what Detective Inspector Bernard Postel saw. He saw this arrogant psychopath becoming unwound. Quote, I think at the time when he realized that he wasn't going to leave, he was incredulous. He was a doctor. He didn't actually say this, but it was almost written in his face. I am a doctor. I have given my explanation. You should be accepting it, and I should be going home now. The next thing that he found difficult to come to terms was that he was kept in custody overnight and was going to go before the court the next morning. I think that he believed that, even if he was charged as an upright member of the community, he wouldn't abscond, and consequently, he would get bail, end of quote. He was so sure that he would get bail that Shipman supporters started putting a bail fund together, and it came as quite a shock when the judge threw out the application for bail. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I would have loved to have seen his face. I would have loved to see him start to fall apart this... <sighs> anyway. At this point, he was only charged with Kathleen Grundy's murder, and that looked like it was driven by greed. The police were starting to realize that they had a serial killer on their hands. The true depths of this monster's depravity was about to be unveiled. And this is how the dominoes fell. When Kathleen Grundy's death was deemed a murder, after toxicology discovered that she had a lethal dose of morphine in her system, they knew that there was likely more victims. He would have had all of his victims cremated if he could have. The police set forth to have his buried suspect victims' bodies exhumed. Like I said before, they don't take this lightly, but they knew that they had to do this. And all 12 bodies were exhumed, and that's including Kathleen Grundy's, eight of which were used in criminal indictment. As I said before, the police had the typewriter with them, so they were able to show that he faked the will. And they had all the patient's records of his victims that he had stored in his house. And they found an odd collection of jewelry which had been stolen from his patients after he'd killed them. 
one of the most important pieces of evidence was from IT specialist John Ashley. He analyzed his computer records and he hit a jackpot with that. Now this is about to get really juicy. So I think it's a good time to stop. <laughs> because I think this is too much to put in one episode. I was really hoping to do it. But I think it is worth the second episode. So bear with me because I will be following up with it shortly after. Okay? Before I move on to the suture room, I would like to tell you about Create Photo Calendars. Create your personalized photo calendar online in minutes. Simply upload your photos from your computer, smartphone, or your Instagram account. You choose from a variety of photo page layouts and background designs. Add birthdays and personal events, and of course, they save your events, making it even easier to create for next year. Their calendars are top quality, and most orders print and ship within 48 hours. And they have a special offer for podcast listeners only. Simply go to createphotocalendars.com to create your calendar and save up to 55%. Use coupon code PODCAST during checkout to save. createphotocalendars.com Okay, it's that time again. It's been a little while coming, I know. It's time for the... <laughs> Booger room! No, no, no. It's time for the... Uh, stitches, no. Ah, okay. It's time for the suture room! <sighs> Where I tell you a real, wild, wacky true story that has taken place during one of my shifts in the ER. So let's get started. I call this one the rooster tail. That's right. The rooster tail. Oh, I think that's that's a turkey, right? Anyway, here's a story. I had a patient come in who was very drunk. He was an alcoholic. And when he had come in, he was unconscious and unable to breathe on his own. So he was intubated for a little while until he was able to breathe on his own, but still needed to be monitored very closely. He was in one of our acute care rooms. And I think I've explained those rooms are where very, very sick people are. Uh, congestive heart failure, pulmonary uh, problems, breathing problems, asthma, COPD, heart attacks, all that kind of stuff. So after he was in trauma, intubated, he stepped down into the acute care area, which was incredibly busy. Now, one thing you need to know, unless you already do know, is that with alcohol, you get many symptoms as you're coming off the alcohol or because it's been in your system wreaking havoc on your system. So, you know, the headache, the nausea, the vomiting, the shakes. But one really big thing is diarrhea. So, this guy was having some problems with diarrhea. 
and we put a commode beside his bed so that he could easily get out of the bed onto that without having to walk to the bathroom because he was a little wobbly. And we also told him that we would help him so he wouldn't fall. In his um, state, he had stripped all the sheets off of his bed and he was in a hospital gown. So if you can imagine the bed was basically the plastic covering of the bed, vinyl, plastic, whatever it is. And he was sitting bare-assed on the bed with this hospital gown on backwards. So we'll stop there for a second because this is really important. In the acute care, is the rooms are divided by curtains only. So as you can imagine, if we need to get to someone quickly, we can just whip in between the curtains. The room next to it had a very sick person in it. And the family member was sitting in the chair with, with them, offering them, you know, love, support, companionship, that kind of thing. So this lady was sitting in a chair and her chair was kind of, it was very, very close to his bed. There was the curtain that separated it. So her, she was facing her loved one and this guy was just an arm's length away on his bed. All of a sudden, we hear splash. Ah, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Oh, geez. Fuck. I'm sorry. So what took place? A rooster tail. What is a rooster tail? If you can imagine a bum, a bottom sitting on a bed and then under great pressure, diarrhea, explosive diarrhea comes and the pressure of it shoots the diarrhea out of the back of the butt, past the crack. And the pressure causes a geyser of poop to go up in the air. It went up in the air to such a height that it went over top of the curtains and splashed on this lady. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. Yes, this poor woman was sitting, concerned, minding her own business, supporting her loved one, and she got a downpour, a torrent of diarrhea all over her. She was beside herself. And we didn't know what to do. I mean... Oh my God, what do you do? How do you apologize to someone for forgetting, for having this happen to them? Like, what do you do? You can't console anybody. It's, you can try. So one of us rushed in this guy's room the, that had been drinking and helped him out and, you know, did what we could with him. And the lady, we just, wow, we got her out of her jacket and her clothes and, got her a gown and helped her, you know, brought her to a shower and did all those kind of things. But man, I, oh, it's horrible. I'll never forget the look on this poor woman's face. I'll never forget the situation. It really was a mess. Unfortunately, there was really no happy ending here, except for, you know, hopefully their loved one went home okay. 
Uh, but yeah, that's my story of the rooster tail. And I bet that you will never look at a rooster tail or even a rooster the same again. So hope you enjoyed today's story. Thank you for joining me. And I want to also say, join in, check out, have your eyes out for the next and final, and I mean it this time, final episode of the Dr. Shipman story. Have a great day, evening or night. Make sure to take care of each other. Love one another. Peace, one love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.